Rising. We've got just an awesome show for you today, and there's a lot of news to dive straight into. But first, I'd love to introduce my co-host for the day, Amisha Cross. Amisha, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Robbie. Yeah, it's great to have you. So Amisha's filling in for Bacha, and Brianna will be back for the rest of the week. Um, it's really, really wonderful to see you, and let's get to the news. So first on deck, we have a midterms update. Herschel Walker has confirmed that he wrote a $700 check to an ex-partner in 2009, denies the check was for an abortion. When presented with the paperwork on the Today Show this morning, Walker said he has no idea what that could be for. Walker was noticeable, uh, noticeably missing rather from last night's Georgia Senate debate or after declining to participate, Democrat Raphael Warnock in instead debated the Libertarian Party candidate, my own party, Chase Oliver, and Walker was represented by an empty podium. Walker and Warnock faced off for the first and only debate last Friday during a tense night that saw both candidates go on the offensive and trade barbs about each other's records. Check out this viral moment. One thing I have not done, I've never pretended to be a police officer. <laughs> And, and, and I've, never, I've never threatened a shootout with the police. Well, and now I have to respond to that. We are, we are, we are no, moving no, 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 on, no. gentlemen. I have to respond to that. And you know what's so funny? I am work with many police officers. <laughs> and at the same time, Mr. Pastor, Walker, Mr. Walker, no, no, Mr. No, no, Walker, no. Mr. Walker, excuse me, truth, Mr. Walker, when please, he say a problem out of with respect, the truth, I, the truth I, I need here. to let you know, Mr. Yes. Walker, you are very well yes. aware of the rules tonight. Yes. And you have a prop. Yes. That is not allowed, sir. Yes. I ask you to put that prop away. Well, it's not a prop. It, it, this it, is real. According to the Real Clear Politics average, Warnock still holds a slim but steady lead over Walker in the polls. Early voting in the Peach State begins today. Hmm. So uh, you tuned in for, I think, more of the debate than I did. I saw kind of just what was posted on social media. Um, how did it go? Warnock performed strongly. I think that he actually performed better in last night's debate than he did in the debate where he was actually, you know, supposed to be ready to have this conversation with Herschel Walker. Um, the interesting part was, even though he was debating a libertarian candidate, he spent so much time speaking to the empty chair. I think he fully recognizes that this race is between him and Herschel. Mm -hmm. looking well, at let's, the not, polling, let's, let's not looking rule at out my representative <laughs> altogether, but okay. <laughs> but even with that being said, I think that, you know, personally, I had questions about why he was there at all. Mm -hmm. Because again, um, there's something to be said about early voting starting in Georgia today. And I thought that he could have had better use of his time. We still don't know how much these debates actually shape voters' uh, voters' understanding of candidates. Many voters don't even watch them um, and just go out and make their decisions. I don't think there are any undecideds at this point. There may be some individuals who don't necessarily want to tell you who they're going to vote for, particularly if they're holding their nose and voting for Herschel Walker, but there are very few last-minute decisions that are being made today. Conservative commentators seemed um, actually somewhat impressed with Herschel Walker's performance. I think he performed better, perhaps, than uh, they had expected him to do. Um, you're right that it's impossible to imagine anyone not having their mind made up at this point. So I, I suppose what Raphael Warnock's strategy or what he needs to do now is, is maybe just get enough independents or Republicans, people who are trending in a, in a voting for Herschel Walker direction, get them to stay home or skip it because they can't stomach doing it after, you know, the various revelations that we've had about the alleged paying for abortion, alleged um, spousal abuse, all, all of those things. No, I, I think that that's right. And I would agree, you know, and this doesn't happen very often with some of those conservative commentators. But when you start 
with expectations at the bottom, which yeah. I will give Herschel Walker that credit. He started saying, you know, um, he's debating someone who's a stronger speaker. He's debating someone with stronger record. He fully understood what he was walking into. And all he had to do was show up and not say anything crazy about um, about pregnant cows or about China's dirty air mixing with America's clean air. The bar was really low. And I will give it to whomever his team of, um, of speech and debate um, prognosticators mm -hmm. were and the people who worked with him on this process because he was short, he was pithy, he came and he did what he needed to do and he didn't fall on his face. Yeah. The only awkward moment I saw in that debate, honestly, was the clip we just showed where he flipped out his badge. My father's a police officer in Chicago and there's and I have several of his badges and there's no way I'm bringing it anywhere <laughs> to flip it for any reason. And, and, and what the moderator was saying was they were explicitly prohibited from involving you know props in what they were doing. Um, th this is because this is a newer phenomenon, but the, the whole the, the conservative figure, the Republican figure in a debate is not just debating the Democrat, but they're debating the moderator. They're, they're debating the very you know, premises that this is a, a fair debate or something, you know, the, the attacks on the media, that kind of thing. And, and there are, uh, I, I think there have been plenty of debates where the moderators are just clearly, um, clearly on the Democratic side or helping the Democratic candidate, including sometimes in debates moded by, uh, moderated by ostensibly you know, conservative figures. Um, the, the Famously, in, in the last, uh, in the Biden-Trump election, the one moderated by, um, by, uh, by the former Fox News host, although I guess now he is at CNN, um, Chris Wallace. And, and it, it, was, it was, I thought it was wildly favorable to Biden, actually, um, constantly interrupting Trump, um, that sort of thing. So it, it, that was a familiar to see that, the, the moderator, you know, tussling with the Republican candidate. No, absolutely. And I thought that the moderator did a great job and should probably be used in some of the presidential debates just because it was very even keeled. Mm -hmm. And um, the expectation, I think, going into this was that moderators would lean harder or ask multiple questions about the abortion narrative because so much of that news has come out as of late, in addition to, you know, kid here, kid there, kid everywhere that he wasn't claiming or wasn't a part of their lives. Um, that didn't really happen as much in the debate as I even expected. Mm. So I think that that helped him in some ways because he wasn't on the defense. He was able to um, leash some barbs against, uh, against his opponent. And I think that some of those landed. Also, he tried to be as short and to the point as possible. And he tried to connect uh, Warnock with Joe Biden. And I think in a place like Georgia, where you see that the inflation, inflationary costs are the top thing. I we say that is true of everywhere in America. Everywhere. But yeah. you see the inflationary cost are what people are voting on. If you can tie Senator Warnock to that, tie him to Biden and some of the decisions that people are upset about coming out of the pandemic, then that can probably be considered a win. Georgia, Georgia is only recently a blue state, if it even is a blue state, right? It's uh, it's it's not uh, it. it it has two Democratic senators right now because of the the unique effort Donald Trump put into sabotaging his own candidates by focusing on you know relitigating his own election grievances. Um, so so you would have perhaps an expectation that those could be uh, th those would be Republican pickups once they were actually in play without Trump's uh, involvement in the same way he has been involved. Um, that now of course Republicans have had a, a more difficult news cycle. 
with the uh, uh, with abortion stuff and and all sorts of other things. But now I'm seeing the you know the generic ballot is swinging back to favoring um, Republicans again, the way it was I think six months ago when when uh, when the economy really you know took a turn for the worst. So I I don't know. <laughs> we could be seeing uh, you, you know we're, we're talking about the idiosyncrasies of some of these candidates and uh, but it's so often it's just whether they're Republican or a Democrat and it, it's the personality matters a little bit but it might not matter enough in this race if it's just people want a check on Joe Biden's policies they blame Joe Biden's policies for what has happened with the election etc if that's what it's about it really doesn't matter what you know the personal behavior of one candidate is or the other this is state by state community by community and i think that um in these races it's very important to localize them and that is something that i think that was done very effectively uh, on the republican side to much to the chagrin of democrats but it, it's it's going to force them to really bring out their base and expand it. Um, with that being said, it was a lot easier for Democrats to run in 2020 because you had um, someone who was vitriolic in the White House. You had someone who spawned people to actually turn out. Trump's not in the White House anymore. And there are several people who are very frustrated with what they're seeing, whether they uh, attribute it rightfully to this president or not. Inflationary costs have happened across the globe. That's not just something that is you know, an American phenomenon. But with that being said, you know, you're always going to blame the uh, the incumbent. You're always going to blame the party that's in power. That's something that we've seen across generations. With gas prices, you know, they're stabilizing a little bit now, but they're still out of reach for several people. With the cost of living rising, uh, housing costs, yeah. uh, the cost of food, affordability, making sure that you're actually just able to make ends meet and keep your head above water. Those are things that people are voting on right now. And Democrats have to do a better job of chopping up that message, being stronger with that delivery, but also reaching out to the communities that matter the most. One of the things that I think in, in Georgia and in several other places that they have taken for granted is that the Democratic base is largely built on a consistent voter base of diverse voters, diverse voters, younger voters. Um, and the push to swing to suburban women, which essentially means white women, has been something that has not necessarily proven strong for them, particularly because of the effectiveness of the crime campaigns or anti-crime mm -hmm. campaigns the Republicans have run. Mm -hmm. Well, and in concern with school policies, pandemic policies, all that stuff that, like you said, matters in the local community. That uh, people, you know, some people see de democratic, some democratic policies up close and are not thrilled with them or enthusiastic about them. That doesn't mean they're they love Trump or they want you know they want Republican policies nationwide. But in their communities, I, I mean, these are the kind of voters we're talking to, and we're finding out more about what motivates them. You know, in people who have been democratic leaning or who are independent who don't like Trump, but. Right, are concerned about crime, are concerned about learning loss, are concerned about those kinds of things. So, yeah. And midterms are, are historically harder for Democrats because that population typically shows up in, you know, in, in general elections every four years. It's harder to get them to come out during midterm elections. And the idea that every election is consequential, we say this every election cycle, this is the election of your lifetime, yeah. this is going to be the one I never that believe everything. That. I never well, believe we that. Well, we say it no matter who's running all the time. Yeah, so yeah. it kind of loses its steam. They always a say that. Well, in other election news, The Hill's Hannah Trudeau reports that Democrats behind the scenes are already making contingency plans for 2024 in case President Biden decides not to seek a second term. I've been pretty insistent that he would, but we'll find out. At the front of the pack is actually Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, according to CNN. The former mayor has become the most requested surrogate on the campaign trail for Democratic candidates this midterm season. And this was such a saucy little tweet they had. Did you? Did you <laughs> it what was, was it exactly? You said saucy. I say shade. I mean, <laughs> they acted like this 
man just came out yesterday, walked out of the woods, and all of a sudden tweet. started getting attention. It's really frustrating. Um, and, and a full disclosure, I am a huge supporter of and a fan of Pete Buttigieg, all right. a fellow Midwesterner. Um, it, I am I impressed am not, by a lot of the work that he has done and the way he mm. took being a small-town mayor, because I do think that in nationalized politics, people disregard small towns, because he wasn't mayor of Chicago or San Francisco or New York. Um, he's a small-town mayor. Before you. So this is from CNN. Pete Buttigieg, whose only political experience before his failed presidential bid was serving as mayor of South Bend, Indiana, has become the most requested surrogate. I mean, it's just very, I don't know why they would, it was very aggressively anti-Pete. I mean, I think a lot of media commentary is is maybe too favorable to uh, to Buttigieg. He's, I think he's better liked by um, the mainstream media or in some progressive media, not left media, uh, more so than other Democratic candidates. This was just a weird call it, out. It was I mean, it now was he's the transportation secretary, and I, exactly. I'm, not, I'm not overly impressed with what he's done as transportation secretary, but he is not just a failed presidential candidate and mayor anymore. It, it, it's it's frustrating. Funny. I mean, I would say the same thing if they had said about Kamala, who is currently vice president. The frustrating part here is that one, he won the Iowa caucus, which if the Iowa caucus wasn't as shifty as it had been, yeah. we would have found out immediately after yeah. he won instead of weeks I later, wonder, I wonder which if is huge. If we deny the results of the Iowa caucus, does that <laughs> trigger some misinformation policy? I don't know. Probably. So he, he did that. Um, he's a prolific fundraiser, probably one of the strongest fundraisers the, Dem the modern Democratic Party has seen. And he's someone who can speak to various audiences, and we've seen him in the trenches. We've seen him in, you know, in, in the conservative, in the, the conservative banals of, um, of cable news. And he's been able to hold his own in a way that other Democrats, including the president of the United States, has not been highly effective in doing or or his spokespeople. So I feel as though you're you have someone who has proven their weight in gold when it comes to being a strong uh, communicator for the Democratic mm. Party. Heck, he needs to help design some strategy for the DNC because Lord knows they need as much communication help as possible. But it's just frustrating to see. Again, there was a lot of shade in that CNN tweet. Um, I blame new leadership personally, but mm. I, I don't think that it's hurting Mayor Pete. He is going to go on the stump speech. He's going to go on the campaign trail and do what he does best: get get people's attention and be able to draw out those crowds who will, in effect, um, have more have more of an understanding of what this administration is doing, why it's important. Because I do think it gets lost in the conversations about inflation, the conversations about crime. How much has actually been achieved by this president? in such a short amount of time. Hmm. And much of that has been done without very much help from the Republican side of the aisle, and he's still been able to be effective in those things. But the message is being drowned out. Hmm. All right, well, coming up next, I'll tell you what's on my radar. Stay tuned for that. What is on your radar, Robbie? I am dying to know. Uh, well, I'm dying to tell you. So the term Pfizergate has been trending on social media following the apparent revelations that Pfizer released the vaccines two years ago, despite not having any research suggesting they would actually prevent the spread of COVID. At a meeting of the European Parliament last week, Janine Small, who's a Pfizer executive, was questioned by Rob Roos, who's a Dutch member of Parliament, Dutch Parliament member. And I will speak in English so there are no misunderstandings. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. 
Um, regarding the question around um, did we know about stopping humanisation before um, it's entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. This is scandalous. Millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth that you do it for others. Now this turned out to be a cheap lie. So Rusa's tweet of that video has gone viral, was viewed millions of times. And I can see why many people, Rusa included, see it as a startling admission. Governments and health authorities all over the world justified vaccine mandates on the grounds that they were necessary for public health. You had to get vaccinated not just to keep yourself safe, but to minimize the risk of transmitting the virus to others. If Pfizer had exaggerated the benefits of vaccination and misled the public, well, that would be a shocking, odious revelation. There's just one problem with that, and it's that vaccine makers never actually marketed them as preventing transmission of COVID. As the Associated Press notes in a fact check of Roos's post, the scientific study that was released the day before the FDA granted emergency approval to the vaccines found that Pfizer's vaccine was 95% effective at stopping symptomatic COVID illness in people 16 years and older. When asked whether the vaccine would prevent transmission, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla said, I think this is something that needs to be examined. We are not certain about that right now. Even the FDA conceded in its press release about vaccine approval that at this time, data are not available to make a determination about how long the vaccine will provide protection, nor is there evidence that the vaccine prevents transmission of SARS-CoV-2 from person to person. According to Pfizer, quote, stopping transmission was not a study endpoint. So the vaccines are extremely effective, to be clear, at preventing high-risk people like the elderly and the immunocompromised from contracting severe disease and dying from COVID. But they're much less effective at stopping transmission of the virus itself. They did keep case levels down somewhat for the original strain, but then the Delta and especially the Omicron variants quite capable of evading protections. By making severe disease less likely and reducing duration and severity of symptoms, vaccines do have some positive effect at reducing transmission, but it's clearly quite limited. Breakthrough cases of COVID are now so common, we all know someone who's had one, if you haven't had one yourself, we've stopped actually referring to them as breakthrough cases. But again, the vaccine makers never claimed otherwise. So if you want to hold someone accountable for misleading the public and requiring vaccine mandates on public health grounds, you actually have to direct your fury at political figures who committed this error. We, we don't talk enough to you about this, I don't think. One last thing that's really important is we're not in a position where we think that any virus, including the Delta virus, which is much more transmissible, and more deadly in terms of non-unvaccinated people, the, vi the, the, the various shots that people are getting now cover that. They're, they're, you're okay. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. That was later struck down by the Supreme Court, and rightly so, in my view. But the U.S.'s travel mandate, a requirement that anyone entering the country who's not a U.S. citizen be vaccinated for COVID on public health grounds, that's still in place. So my point is that people should direct their criticisms at the U.S. government. Mandates were government policies not enacted by Pfizer or anyone else. Hold our political leaders accountable if they continue to cling to policies on public health grounds that make no sense. 
And so that's my frustration, uh, Amisha, because this was so this went really viral uh, over the last couple of days, and it was as if something that we didn't know before had been conceded by this Pfizer executive. But actually, they never even made that claim, uh, which it, it, that claim was made wrongly by so many government officials, so many commentators. I probably made it wrongly at various times. All these people saying things that it turned out not to be true, but was not was not studied in the in initial trial. And the reason it matters is because. You know, it, it, the mandates, I, I think, were largely justified on grounds that it, it's not just your, you know, you should do what you're doing for your health. Um, but, but we don't force you generally, to, you know, to live a more healthy life. The mandates were coming in because, well, you know, it's not just you. You could get someone else sick and they could die, et cetera. But the vaccine itself it helps prevent you from getting it. But... But we're, we're going to make it so that you have to get it so I might not transmit it to you in a, in, a, in a workplace setting, in a school, whatever. If it's not true that the vaccines really do all that much to stop person A from transmitting it to person B, the justification for having you know, that kind of law kind of goes away. So that's why, that's why this matters so much, that, uh, that, um, the, 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 because the public health justification where the mandates really rest not on just on keeping yourself safe, but on keeping others safe, which we now know. Like now we're okay. Now it's okay to admit, even though uh, there were policies on social media and elsewhere that like you couldn't say this. But now we all know it's basically true that the vaccine itself is not really doing the job in terms of transmission. Well, I think that the vaccine is working like all vaccines do. So I, I have a little, I take a little bit of onerous with the, the clip that's been shared, you know, worldwide, mm -hmm. um, because I think that it furthers anti-vaxxer notions. But the issue here is that um, people are trying to make the COVID-19 vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, work in a way that every vaccine in the history of vaccines has not worked. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that it was going to prevent you from getting COVID was never one that was pushed by doctors or actually Pfizer itself. Itself, like every vaccine, the idea here is that it will help you if you if you do catch this you know highly contagious virus, that it will reduce long-term problems or reduce hospitalization. Mm -hmm. That is the key here. It reduced hospitalization numbers, and it has. It has done exactly what it was supposed to do. Now, if you want to argue that there were some um, some state and local leaders who had various mandates um, in Chicago, my hometown, Chicago, stay home, save lives. Basically, people were locked in the house for quite some time yeah. um, to the point where there were actual patrols to see when you were outside. I thought that was a, a, a bit much. Um, but I, I, I feel like at least in the early onset of this pandemic, people didn't really know what to do or how exactly it was transmitted. Mm -hmm. So we heard a lot of things that became conflicting later on. Then there were all of the variants and subvariants that came out of this. And quite frankly, many people got frustrated because again, knowledge of science in this country is pretty low. Yeah. So you had people who assumed if I get vaccinated, then why the heck am I getting this virus? As somebody who was vaccinated, boosted, and just received the, the new booster, I've gotten COVID twice. Both times it was the, the, the newest variant. I never had Delta, I had the Omicron mm -hmm. twice. And yes, it was not fun to have, but I assume because I know friends who didn't have the vaccine, whose symptoms were a lot worse and lasted longer than mine did. So with that being said, it operated in the way it needed to operate. I think we're always gonna see these flash, flash in the pale news cycles where people are still um, basically trying to shade the vaccine in and of itself. 
But if you're going to direct your upset at anybody, it should be at some state and local leaders. I think they were a little bit overzealous um, in, their, in their understanding of Loyal how they spread bit, and how say. they treated it. As somebody, I was in New York um, last last Christmas, and you know they had the not only the vaccine mandates, they had the what do you the vaccine passports. You could right. not go anywhere without showing this. I got COVID in New York with a vaccine passport in an arena where everybody had the vaccine. So, so did, I think so you have to be very people, serious. Right? <laughs> that's kind of how it worked. Granted, yeah. I wasn't you know down you know sick four days at a time, didn't have to take off yeah. work or anything. But it was one of those things where we have to be serious about what is happening here. If you tell people or they have an idea that because they have the vaccine or the booster, they'll never get COVID, I think that that is an ignorant understanding of how this works. Right, it's obviously just wrong. Just like the flu vaccine. I've had the flu before and had the flu vaccine. Yeah. There are various variants associated well, I got, with that and I got well. the flu vaccine and I, I, got the, I got the COVID vaccine and I've gotten my booster, et cetera. I'm not, I'm not against getting the vaccines at all. I just think it should be, it's, it's, it's your choice whether to do, I mean, you know, talk to your doctor, do, I'm not going to require anyone to do it because it's not, it's not stopping anyone else. The public health justification isn't there. Do it if you want to do it. Don't do it. Doesn't matter to me. I, and that's what I think government policy should reflect. Well, we have a sizable elderly population and people in this country who are not elderly who have pre-existing conditions. Yeah. So for me, public health is ensuring that I'm not only taking care of me, but I'm also thinking about my fellow yeah. man. Well, I, think, whether, I think those people should get it. It just doesn't matter if I do or not. People, well, I don't necessarily think that's true. I'm going to push back here because as somebody who it. had a who has an aunt who's since passed who had cancer, yeah. I would not go around her without having a vaccination. Absolutely not. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, she could catch this and she could end up passing. Um, and I don't. I think that we have to be very serious about that. Obesity and being overweight in this country um, that continues to increase. Yeah. No pun intended. Those people have a lot harsher effects once they contract COVID than you or I would. Oh, I don't disagree so with that. So we do have to be strategic those, about how And we... those people should get vaccinated. I'm just saying it doesn't matter whether I get vaccinated or not, doesn't have much impact on whether they're going to get COVID. Well, them that, maybe that, that, them that study has vaccine. yet to be seen. Right. We have yet to fully see whether this has actually reduced transmission rates. Yeah. Um, Again, a little bit, the, the verdict, the verdict is still, still not out on that. I think it's a little bit, but maybe not that much. All right. Well, thank you so much for that uh, spirited conversation, and we'll have more rising right after this. I don't want to use the word mistake, John, because if I do, it gets taken out of the context that you're asking me the question on. Well, but did, was, uh, did we uh, pay I, too high a price? Yeah, I would say that what we should realize and have realized that there will be deleterious collateral consequences when you do something like that. This idea that this virus doesn't afflict children is not so. It does. We've lost close to 1,500 kids so far. But, but much less than yeah. the older population, obviously. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. But you shouldn't discount that it does afflict children. So it isn't without consequences. If you go back and I ask anybody to go back over the number of times that I've said we've got to do everything we can to keep the schools open. No one plays that clip. They always come back and say Fauci was responsible for closing schools. I had nothing yeah. to do. That was outgoing White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci on ABC News this week pushing back on any notion that he had anything to do whatsoever with the collateral damage that shutting down schools had on kids during COVID. Fauci, who says he will step down after serving in his role as head of NIH's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, reflected on his tenure, adamantly defending his response to COVID-19, but acknowledging now 
that mistakes were made. Mistakes were made by someone else in a passive kind of sense. He doesn't like to call it a mistake because, you know, then, then I, I guess he's subjected to some amount of scrutiny. Um, there's probably no, no uh, federal official or bureaucrat ever wants to admit anything's a mistake. Um, but, uh, but it was. It was a catastrophic mistake. We, you know, we, we see, you can see the math and reading, test scores plummeting, the social anxiety, the, I mean, the difficulty for parents who then had to watch their kids. Remote learning, just an absolute farce uh, for so many kids. Uh, some kids did, did fine with, I, I think, the kids who are already um, quite academically gifted, were you know, who can learn on their own, who are already very ahead, we're doing fine, maybe. But the the kids who who most need both the structure of school and the advantage that you know a dedicated tr teacher can provide them, they were just so ne negatively impacted by this. Absolutely, and I won't say that it was a mistake, so to speak, as it was unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who's worked in education, education policy for a long time, full disclosure, I currently work for the former Secretary of Education under Obama. John King, learning loss is real. And learning loss technically happens almost every year. We, we, count, we count that among summer vacation as yeah. well. And we call that the brain drain. But here, where you had students who were out, in some cases, almost two years, um, be it whether they were doing remote learning or whether they were doing some hybrid model, depending mm -hmm. on the school district, what we know is that specifically school districts that are in impoverished areas, those that have lot hard, larger concentrations of communities of color, um, places where there was already um, some issues related to reading and math on grade level, those are the areas that got hit the hardest. In addition to watching teachers leave, the teacher shortage was largely funneled. We were going to have it anyway. You know, numbers showed that a decade ago that fewer people were going to college to get education degrees and teach in the classroom. But now we see so many teachers that have left since the pandemic, never to return. So there are teacher shortages. There is the social impact for the young people. They're not socialized with other yeah. young people of their grades. That's because be huge. Obviously, yeah. they're, they're at home. Um, and we're seeing antisocial behavior because of that. We're seeing anxiety and right, depression levels increase among that. these young people. The digital divide. Several school districts didn't even have the capacity for students to sign up to do anything online. We know that in some of our larger school districts in New York, in L.A., in Chicago, in Atlanta, um, you would have 60%, sometimes over that, of students who didn't sign in at all for any class. Mm -hmm. So learning loss was huge. And now we're seeing the, the fruits of that, so to speak, when it comes to the, um, the percentage points decline in particularly math and reading, essential building blocks of success. When you have uh, math and reading scores that are lower now than they were before the pandemic, and sizably so, again, in some of our larger districts, you're talking double percentage decreases, um, that's a huge shift because it means more people aren't going to graduate from high school. We're seeing dropout rates increase, which America has been steady for at least 12 or 13 years yeah. now with increases in high school graduation. That is being reversed. If you don't graduate from high school, many people aren't going to go and get the GED and then go on to college. So we're talking about long-term consequences of not having financial stability because in this country, much to the chagrin of myself as well, um, you have to have a degree because of the way our system is set up yes. to actually get not only a living wage job, but a job that provides you health insurance, a job that provides you benefits, a job that allows for you in many cases to be able to afford that home or at least be able to have access to housing. That is not what is going to happen when we see so many students, literally thousands of students. In that clip you showed, Fauci mentioned maybe 1,500 that you know might have gotten COVID. We're talking about 40 states that were surveyed. 
that showed hundreds of thousands of students yeah. who are basically set back yeah. and set back not only months in some cases, five or six months in terms of their educational acumen, but years, depending on where they were, the concentration of poverty right. and things like right, that. Right, right. And it's so... Uh, dishonest for him to kind of say, well, I am blameless here because I was not in charge of the school policies. Sure, fine. But federal guidance on COVID, uh, we we just, we did not do a, a, at least if you lived in an area controlled by Democrats, a blue area, which many, most of our cities are, um, they, they did not go their own course. They did they marched in lockstep to what the CDC was telling them, what the White House coronavirus advisors were saying. And the guidance on that was so clearly um, toward, uh, toward fear of COVID. And, and look, which is not to say that's fear, like any fear of COVID was illegitimate. Like we've talked about, the impacts on elderly and immunocompromised people are significant. Which several of those but, are also in our schools, be it whether they're teachers, bus drivers, cafeteria absolutely. workers, things like that. But we had, but you had, um, you know, you had, e- even after the point at which all the staff members of these of these places were able to be vaccinated, you still had schools not resuming immediately. I mean, as you probably know, the teachers union leadership advocated for, uh, I heard Randy Weingarten say it on TV, say she really would not be comfortable having schools resume until there was something approaching no COVID transmission in schools whatsoever, which we now know will never happen. (laughs) It's not going to happen in the next decade. Um, That was the level of, 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 disinclination for putting students needs first that we that they would and, and and in fact schools stayed shut down more than anything else in our entire society I was say, restaurants I was... were open people went back to work if they many i mean many many people had to work the whole time working people mm-hmm. still went to work and we talk about how well we were all virtual a lot of people we're not we're virtual not. for they any did not have the time. opportunity to be but virtual restaurants open everyone back to work everything operating because you, because it had to happen Schools still shut down. That was true in this city. D.C. was one of the most school shut down, one of the most locked down places in general, but especially the schools, how long it took. And, and then with, you know, mit- mit- all sorts of mitigation efforts, still uh, masking, et cetera, which I, which I personally believe it, it has contributed so, to some degree of learning loss. I think for some kids, it's hard to understand their teachers if they're all having to wear masks all the time. It's clearly impacted their kind of social development and this. I mean, some people, some schools were still, were still requiring kids to wear uh, masks while they were, you know, doing sports and things like that. It's a whole different subject. But in, in the early aughts of the pandemic, I agreed with a lot of what we saw school districts do across the country, quite frankly, because we didn't know, mm-hmm. we didn't have all the information that we needed about how this was spread and we wanted to take care of kids. This isn't the first time that we've seen um, districts that were afflicted shut down. Like right now, Jackson Public Schools um, has, has shut down in Mississippi largely because there is no running water. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that there are things that exist, particularly as you know, we heard from Dr. Fauci as well as other, um, as other leading health professionals about mitigation efforts, whether it was air quality in schools, ventilation, yeah. whether it was making sure that they had clean water, whether it was reducing class size, whether it was um, somewhat stalling school schedules to reduce the amount of people in the halls. These types of things were designed to mitigate once students got back. I will concede that I think students should have been in the classroom again sooner. The, um, the, the learning loss does not, this does not equate to me with what the public health scare happened to be, especially for the yeah. young people, because our youngest learners, quite frankly, weren't necessarily as affected in the same way from they that public health they crisis weren't. as some of the older individuals. Not nearly. So not close. yeah, it, it lasted way too long. And I don't think that those young people, sadly, are going to be able to recoup what they've lost. Mm. Very frustrating. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned.
this month, President Biden called on governors to pardon simple marijuana possession charges at the state level. Governor Greg Abbott rebuked the request, saying, quote, Texas is not in the habit of taking criminal justice advice from the leader of the Defund the Police Party. Since then, Abbott, along with Governors Bill Lee and Asa Hutchinson, have raked in more than $263,000 from donors linked to the private prison industry. According to reporting by The Lever, quote, since 2020, two private prison giants alone, CoreCivic and the GEO Group, have dumped more than $1.7 million into the Republican Governors Association, which bankrolls GOP gubernatorial campaigns across the country. Joining us now to discuss is managing editor at The Lever, Joel Warner. Welcome, Joel. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to see you. Um, so tell us about uh, th this kind of private prison incentive, I guess, to have a more uh, carceral policy. I mean, yeah, I mean, the prisons themselves have admitted in their reports that uh, the cannabis reforms, uh, including the ones that the president announced a few weeks ago, are going to have an impact on their bottom lines. Literally, they will just, you know, so many of their prison cells have been filled with uh, the victims of the war on crime that now that we're seeing reform efforts, uh, I think you have a lot of these large operators who are getting quite nervous. Since 2020, Joel, the number of people incarcerated in private prisons, the growth of a private prison industry has expanded 14%. With that being said, and acknowledging that private prison growth during that time period was largely contributive to immigration policy, um, why do you think, or what has the effect been with the coziness that we now know that the private prison industry has with leading conservatives and with the Republican Party, as evidenced by its relationship with the Repub Republican Governors Association? going to see the prison industry uh, continue to shape uh, how the Republican governors are going to be uh, responding to policies, whether it's immigration or whether it's cannabis reforms. I think at this point, uh, when it comes specifically to cannabis reforms, it's not if this is going to happen, but how it's going to happen. So I think what we're going to see is uh, these private, pri private prison industries really pushing um, how these reform laws are going to be passed instead of focusing on more of uh, the prison reforms, more of uh, pardoning low-level kind of cannabis convictions, less of uh, expunging former kind of cannabis records. It's going to be focused more on just legalization efforts and less on actually kind of reforming some of the harms of the war on drugs in the past. Do Democrats receive... Um you know, donations, are they subjected to lobbying in, you know, in places that are under, obviously there, there are some cities, states, et cetera, that are under Democratic control. Uh, do, do those, when, when there are, when they're, the private prison industry might have a financial incentive, is, are there donations, is there lobbying there as well? Oh, of course. I mean, private, as we know, the private prison industry is so huge, they are going to be impacting kind of politicians at both kind of Democratic and Republican states. So you will see the same thing. You will see, you know, especially as more blue states start to uh, legalize their their cannabis laws, one of the big issues is how much kind of prison reform there is going to be. And that really comes down to how much money is being funneled to uh, the people 
in power, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans. So, so since I'm libertarian, I'm not against like privatizing things in general. So the private part of the private prisons is not what bothers me. It's the prison part. But I absolutely understand your point that so, so I, I like I would just say that like the laws need to change because I think all of these things, I think marijuana and even you know, more stronger drugs, I support legalizing all of them. And I, it, you know, should be done at the political level. It's something the government has to do. But I understand, you know, wh where you're coming from, which is saying that this industry specifically has an incentive to lobby the government to have more, to have more unlibertarian, more unliberal, un more anti-freedom policies in order to lock more people up. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, is there, so, so while I, I, ideally I would say should, the law should just change so that these things are not illegal in the first place, um, are, there, are there other reforms like you know, anti-lobbying measures that can be taken into consideration? In general? What do you mean for, for, this uh, industry for cannabis specifically. laws in general? It's you know, interesting because I think industry, yeah. oh, For the private industry. I think in general we haven't seen a lot of push around that. I think because because this industry is so new, because because these laws are so new, we're actually actually seeing a lot of kind of uh, quid pro quo kind of across this entire kind of industry in legalization efforts. I mean, we have states that have been actively kind of collecting money from uh, kind of big uh, cannabis businesses in response to deciding where medical licenses and recreational licenses are going to be uh, located. In places like Massachusetts, so I think in general, uh, you know, most of the activists are just focusing on getting the stuff legalized and, and getting these reforms in place versus how much kind of money is going to the politicians who are shaping these laws. So I think we haven't seen much of that yet. This is a tough thing, and I say that because you know, as, as somebody who's not a supporter of the private prison industry or and a lot of, of private institution in general, um, the the issue that I see with it is largely regulatory. There are a lot of issues that happen with within the private prison industry, whether they're charging more for phone calls or they're not providing um, adequate medical care and things like that. That are not necessarily the same problems that you see at that height in your generalized state-run prisons. With that, looking at that, and also looking at um, a question that Robbie asked earlier that. I was going to double down on. Um, as someone who's worked in criminal justice reform and has worked with the Congressional Black Caucus Institute and the CBCF Foundation here in DC, one of the things I know about private prison industry is that they're not only appealing to conservatives. We talked about the, um, the, the Republican Governors Associ Association earlier, but a little tidbit that few people know is that the criminal justice reform efforts that have been designed just this past year from the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation were designed with specific input from private pr prison industry leaders. So so these are people who are supposed to be representing the black community and black community interests, which has largely been shaped by the our failed criminal justice system, who are literally going to the people who have a vested interest and in locking people up who look like me and asking them what they should be doing in their criminal justice reform efforts and literally writing policy designed by what these leaders tell them. So I think this is bigger than, and it goes beyond um, what might happen with, with marijuana pardons, but also to the strength of the private prison industry to work both sides of the political aisle. Yeah, and I think you have it exactly right. I mean, I mean these these are private companies and they're looking for uh, successful markets, right? And if they are going to be losing access to some of kind of the war the war on drug markets and the cannabis markets, they're going to look at other kind of 
captive markets, as you pointed out, whether it's other kind of uh, minority groups, uh, the immigration efforts. I mean, we're going to see them saying, OK, if we're going to be losing some of our, quote unquote, uh, kind of market share from from the war on drugs, like where else are we going to be able to expand? How are we going to be able to kind of offset that loss in prisoners and that loss in profits? Mm. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. We'll have more Rising right after this. I'm not concerned about the transfer of dollar. I'm concerned about the rest of the world. Does that make sense? Can you explain that? Yes. Our economy is strong as hell. The internal is Inflation is worldwide. It's worse off everywhere else than it is in the United States. So the problem is the lack of economic growth and sound policy in other countries, not so much ours. Hmm. That was President Biden speaking to reporters at a Portland ice cream shop over the weekend. Made me hungry for ice cream. The commander in chief is facing backlash online for a seemingly sunny outlook on the economy, even after last week's CPI report shows inflation still on the rise, actually. What do you think of Misha? Is his tone kind of correct there? The second half of his message was absolutely on point factual and I think strong. We are doing a lot better than the majority of countries across uh, across the globe. Um, our economy is doing better now than it was doing at the early onset of the pandemic, even better than it was at the beginning of this year. However, inflation numbers are what they are. So when you're right. talking to a generalized American public that cannot pay rent, that cannot afford their housing costs, that can't afford, you know, their energy costs and, you know, things are about can't to get chillier across the, gas the country, tank. can't fill up at the gas tank, can't afford food, that is, it sounds pretty tone deaf. So I, I think that, you know, off the cuff Biden is usually not the Biden that sells well. Um, this is one of those On the times cuff Biden where, doesn't necessarily sell much better. But. This is one of those times where you kind of have to read the room. Mm -hmm. Americans' number one priority going into midterms is inflation. It is our economy. And, and I do get it. You know, when you look at the economic numbers, if you're an economist, if you're a financial expert, they look better than they do to the American, the average American who is looking at that grocery list and deciding what they have to check. Mm -hmm what they have to scratch off because they simply cannot afford to get it. You have to juxtapose those two because Democrats are on the campaign trail right now and making our economy look sunny to people who are literally living paycheck to paycheck is not necessarily, in my opinion, the best way to go about it. No, it's just, it's a bad message. Why try to sell that message? You have to sell, we know things are tough. We know things are bad. Here's what we need to, here's what we're going to do and here's what we need to do to bring down food costs, to bring down energy costs. Um, I, I don't know, the, the, um, whatever the administration is doing, it's very confused on several fronts. Um, it, it, fixing the, the energy price, uh, you know, gas affects so many other things. Uh, you know, we know how, for instance, the, the Ukraine-Russia um, Ukraine war is contributing to all of this by, making, by you know, putting our energy prices and some food prices all out of whack globally. It's true. It's a global problem. I take that. Not a, not a particularly a U.S. problem. But, of course, U.S. policy matters. Like, I, we're going to... To the Saudi Arabia is not turn is you know going to send us less gas because of our because we mismanage that relationship. Um, well, what about Iran? What about Venezuela? What about the other thing? Like, do We're something. We're seeing renegotiations with OPEC. We know that right. the supply chain issues still exist. I'm a little bit I push back somewhat on the Ukraine um, Russia 
war just because at the end of the day, um, our energy dependence has never been on them. Actually, America gets less than 4% of its gas mm -hmm. from them. There are countries that are a lot closer to Russia that are a lot more energy dependent on them than we are. Yeah, well, but they're, and they're really they're, suffering. And, and to his point, you know, the second half of his, you know, ice cream extravaganza was noting that everyone is seeing inflationary costs yeah. rise. Everyone is having this problem across the globe. We have turned out better than the majority of nations. That is absolutely factual. But if I'm having a hard time feeding my kids, that's not yeah. the argument I want to hear. Yeah, I'm having a hard time feeding myself. I mean, <laughs> I don't I'm have a, kids. I'm a person of, uh, I don't have kids either. I'm, and I'm a person of privilege to be clear, but yeah, I'm looking at the bill sometimes for, you know, for the, the shopping, the grocery list bill, or the bill for just, you know, if you, you run out to, to get lunch or something, you know, grab on the go, and go, oh my God, $15 for like, what did I get, a sandwich, a cup of the coffee? The cost it's of milk and nuts. cereal. Yeah. Like, to, to your point, as, as somebody who isn't necessarily living paycheck to paycheck, I know what milk costs were just three or four months ago. Yeah. And now it's like, well, I might have this cereal and not this milk because I just refuse to pay it. I think we reach a point where it becomes extremely difficult to make this sound rosy when everyday people are struggling. And we mm -hmm. have to acknowledge that. Americans' um, paychecks are not increasing. And the fight to bring back the, or the fight for a new normal, I don't even know what the old normal was. People were struggling then too, but they're struggling more post-pandemic. There has to be a different messaging strategy. Mm -hmm. And it was disappointing, I think. And you know, I, I, like I said, the second half of his argument, I totally understand the first part he could have phrased differently. Um, again, being tone deaf during a midterm election year is probably not the way you want to go, especially when the economy is people's top priority when it comes and, to policy. And one of the relative strengths that uh, that the GOP has versus Democrats, people like, they don't may, might not like Trump personally or like his behavior on Twitter, I certainly don't, but uh, they liked the Trump economy. I mean, the voters... They liked what they thought the Trump economy was. Trump's tax policies benefited the wealthy. They actually did nothing for the middle class, and they totally forgot about lower-income individuals. Life is was the better same for guy, the middle this class This is the then. same guy who was trying to pull SNAP benefits away at Christmas time, literally taking food stamp benefits away from our poorest people around the holidays. But so the I'm structure not the economy necessarily going to go with that. good for small businesses, good for working people. It depended they, on who the small business owner was. Talk to small business owners in the black community, and they will tell you that that is absolutely not factual. So I, again, I think that it depends on who you talk to and what segment of the population. Because yes, there are some people who continually tout the Trump era policies, but these people were typically better off in the economy anyway, and they had higher earning potential. So we have to look at that and take that into context. The tax breaks for the rich were great. If you were wealthy, if you owned yachts, if you owned private properties in multiple states, it was great. But if you were the single mom, you were, you know, still struggling. It was still hard climb. If you were the person who well, you're was really to struggling now, though. No, absolutely. <laughs> you're, you're Part really of that is also, now. you know, the, yeah. the cost of trying yeah. to come back after a global yeah. pandemic. Yeah, your, your, you know, your, your kid's school might still close. You can forget about going to your job, your low-paying job. You don't even have that job because you can't go because you're taking care of your kids. Or, and and, and part of that is now that's Republican policies because Democrats oh. have been pushing for child care, uh, universal child care, and child care assistance for quite some time now. There was a, in, in 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 the you know the post-pandemic era, there were several bills that were passed by the Democratic-led House specifically to address child care issues, and not a single Republican supported it. And quite frankly, we had two Democrats who also caused problems with that um, in, in Mansion and Cinema. But we, we can't not be honest with the people here. There was a very strong push from Democrats to address that specifically, and we've seen it fall on its face largely because of the right. Hmm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. As Democrats consider future leaders of the party, 
Former President Obama shared this message for Team Blue while speaking to Pod Save America this weekend. I think we do get into trouble. Look, I used to get into trouble whenever, as, as you, know, you guys know well, whenever I got a little too professorial and you know, started when I was behind a podium as opposed to when I was in a crowd, there were times where I'd get, you know, uh, you know sound like I was given a bunch of policy gobbledygook. And that's not how people think about these issues. They, they think about them in terms of, you know, the life I'm leading day to day. How, how, how does politics even, how is it even relevant to, uh, you know, the things that I, I care most deeply about? My family, my kids, you know, work that gives me satisfaction, uh, you know, having fun. You know, not, you know, not not being a buzzkill, right? Uh, you <laughs> that's know, a, that's so, a lesson for the Democratic. Yeah, yeah and, and sometimes Democrats are right, yeah. and they want some acknowledgement that life is messy, and that all of us, at any given moment, uh, can, you know, uh, say things the wrong way, you know, make mistakes. Uh, and this is a point that Obama has actually raised on numerous occasions. I've heard him give speeches before where he. Um, uh, what we're, you know, what we're talking about here is the kind of um, woke, cancel culture-y free speech. Stuff. He he's chided student activists for shouting down speakers and 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 you know for for getting offended by things people might say that maybe they're problematic or offensive. He. He, and more later in that clip, he talks about how his own his own mother will say things sometimes that are like oh my like are problematic, but how insane it would be to like you know say that there's something wrong with her or, or or crazy or deeply offensive about her. Like older people just have a different way of talking. Everyone had a different way of talking until like five minutes ago when a small number of progressive activists decided that these are the new language rules, and if you say any of these things, you know you should be fired or. Just or just expelled or like basically short everything short of arrested and Obama makes this point over and over again and it's a point I think the Democratic Party or not not even so much the party but the people who speak on its behalf in terms of elite educational circle, uh, circles on Twitter um, they should listen to that lesson which is like don't jump on people for uh, for these small little slights that no one no one agrees with this no one like 80% of people including within the democratic coalition think political correctness has gone too far and cancel culture has gone too far and on and on and on I mean, perfect is the enemy of the good. And to your point, uh, former President Obama has made this clear multiple times yeah. because the Democratic Party um, leadership in many cases has, and, and sometimes voters as well, have the habit of basically eating their own. Mm -hmm. um, should you make a mistake, should you say something that falls out of uh, out of line with, I guess, the, the normal phrasing or out of line with where... Uh, where current events are going right now, even if it was a mistake, a flub, something like that, then your career could totally be upended in a way that we're not seeing happen for Republicans. One, because Republican voters stick with their people even if they're hella problematic. We've seen that with Herschel Walker. Um, we've seen that with Dr. Oz. We've seen that with several people. But even Donald Trump. With that being said, I think that this is also a former president who fully understands, because of his multicultural background, because of the several places he's lived, that people think differently. And it's okay to have a difference of opinion and the open marketplace of ideas is necessary. That's what college is all about. Like you're going to have people who come to your campus who speak on issues that you may not agree with. You don't have to go to said event. Or maybe you go to said event and you learn something at event. Maybe you don't, maybe you just really don't like this speaker. That is absolutely fine. And I think that what he's trying to get across, especially in this midterm election year, is that you might not always have a perfect candidate. 
humans aren't perfect. Imperfection is what makes the world go round. With that being said, you have to, you have to rise above the muck in terms of these, um, I would probably call them purity tests of mm -hmm. sorts. The Democratic Party has, and many voters actually, mm -hmm. have decided to utilize. And they're not even issue-based purity tests. They're, they're like, they're communications-based purity tests. They're like, you know, what did, what did you tweet, you know, 18 years ago when you were like five years old? Or then, oh, that, no, you can't, sorry, you have to be destroyed now. Which has happened even outside of the political space. We've oh, seen absolutely. it with certain journalists who, you know, who would tweet something when they were in college, 18, 19 years old, then it comes back to bite them how many years later? Yeah. And, that, and I think that part It happens to working people. Every day. Now, granted, there are certain things you absolutely should not say. Yeah. Like, full disclaimer, um, if you have something, you know, if you're anti-Semitic tropes, if you're a raging racist, yeah. there are certain things that I feel like are should yeah. be rebuked consistently. But we're seeing people get caught up on small idiosyncrasies, and it's just not that serious. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, doesn't the, I, I always bring this up, because progressives tend to, uh, tend to think, and I often agree with them, in like rehabilitation. And I mean, they believe in, in, in letting you know, people out of prison and, and that they should be able to vote and participate in society, right? Many progressives support bills that you can't even ask someone if they're like in a job application, Ban whether the they've box. been in prison, yeah. that kind of thing. So it's, I think it's weird to have that kind of standard for people who've actually committed crimes and gone to prison, but be like, no, you, you should be unemployable if you ever tweeted something problematic in your life. You should not be able to work. What, how does that make any sense? Why the, the crime for having said something sexist or racist is, is, is from the progressive standpoint, would be worse than the, than the, than the, the punishment for like committing assault. Or something. We, we have to be real in our in our country that racism and sexism has existed throughout our country's history and several other countries as well. Um, and there should be a penalty for that. Should you not be able to work your entire life? Probably not. But I do believe that depending on what you're doing, if you are a professor of a large or even a small institution, um, coming out and saying racist or anti-Semitic things are probably not the move. Mm -hmm. uh, but. But those are isolated examples. My issue is that we're seeing people get cancel cultured, one, because they say something stupid, not necessarily something that is going to spawn anti-Semitic tropes or, or, or you know, racism based in violence, because they said something ignorant. And there are a lot of ignorant people walking around for various reasons. And those people should be educated. I, I think you should course correct them, but not necessarily in their careers. Right. If you're going to end the careers of everyone who's ignorant, like no one would work. We're all ignorant in some ways. We're all, well, and also people are not expected to be so up to date. I mean, you know, what, what counts as, uh, not so much, I don't think what counts as anti-Semitic has changed very much, but what, what counts is, for instance, anti, uh, I, I get a lot of criticism from activists on behalf of the transgender community. You know, these are ideas that are still in flux that have not been accepted by necessarily everyone with what gender means and what and what sex means and all those like these are being hotly debated and some in the in the like the very wokest progressive circles are asserting that no if anyone who falls short of this line is ignorant and evil and bad and i'm looking like well almost everyone falls short of that line because because this has not uh, been accepted broadly enough yet and and i i think it's I think a lot of these things still require conversation. I mean, we have a lot of conversations about this issue in particular on the show uh, because it is still in flux and it's and not been arrived And because terms and acceptability have changed so much rapidly. In the last five seconds. Yeah, rapidly. Since we started filming this, it changed. You might not be someone who is, um, not you personally, yeah. but proverbially you, who is anti-trans, but one small segment or one comment can be taken in a very negative light that just yeah. two weeks ago, 
was not seen in that same that, way. That's so something that Obama understands in, in, a, in, a, in a unique way, I think. He understands it better than a lot of people who speak for Democrats understand it. And I think that's why part of why he was such a successful, uh, he was the most successful Democratic political figure in, in, in memory. I, and I think that's part of it. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Convicted school shooter Nicholas Cruz was sentenced to life in prison without parole on Friday for murdering 17 people at Parkland's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018. The jury said it could not unanimously agree that he should be sentenced to death. According to News Nation, Judge Elizabeth Scherr confirmed that three jury holdouts voted against the death penalty, ultimately sparing Cruz's life. Well, this decision has renewed debate over who, if anyone, is deserving of the death penalty. Criminologist at Northeastern University, the uh, James Allen Fox, tweeted that the mother of a teacher slain at Parkland reportedly said, quote, after the ruling, if this was not the most perfect death penalty case, then why do we have the death penalty at all? Uh, and then James Allen Fox points out in this tweet that exactly we shouldn't have the death penalty. Public mass shooters rarely get sentenced to death, just two since 2006, which is very interesting. Um, yeah, look, I'm not a, a necessarily a supporter of the death penalty in general, um, but this is this is not why I'm not a supporter of the death penalty. I like I, I think it would be perfectly morally unproblematic if Nicholas Cruz was executed. He is clearly guilty. He killed tons of people. My issue with the death penalty is that we have, we have in the past, the U.S. government has wrong, has executed people who were later exonerated. Um, it has, ex it, you know, it has executed confused, mentally ill people who have confessed uh, because they were subjected to long, tor to long to interrogations um, or, or because of evidence that, you know, think later, that kind of thing. So we, we should not we should not execute people because you can't, you know, even if you've, obviously it's still very bad to lock someone up for years, for decades, if they were innocent. There's, but in many of those cases, at least you can still, they're not, if they're not dead, you can still do something. If you later find out you made a mistake, you can try to make amends to them. You can't if you've executed them. We executed people wrongly. So that gives me we've tremendous actually, We've actually, we've incarcerated people wrongly no, as well. We've um, and we shouldn't do that either. But death is final. There's nothing you can do if you've executed someone and they're later. So I don't trust the state basically with the power to execute people is what I'm saying. Although in cases where the guilt of the person is is so unambiguous as it is in the case of like the Parkland shooter or the Boston bombers or something, probably the crime needs to have some additional like public terror or alarm kind of component as school shootings the, do. The I would DC have no, sniper. I have no issue. I would have no issue with him being executed. I, I wouldn't either. I, my, my issue, and I don't have one in, with the death penalty broadly, it's more so the disproportionate effects of those mm -hmm. who, um, who are found innocent later or those who did, should not have gotten the death penalty anyway, looking at the, um, the, the effects, particularly on my community. More people sit on death row who come from minority backgrounds than, than does anyone else. And part of that is a decision made by the justice system itself and the levers there that decide that criminality and being able to be reformed is something that's not possible for people of color in the same way it is for their white counterparts. The issue here that I have that I think that you, you spoke very, um, very strongly on just now is that this is a cut and dry case. Yeah. I agree with the quote at the end of at the end of your statement. Um, 
I don't know of a death penalty case that is actually going to result, result in the death penalty if this one doesn't. Yeah. Because there is no question that he did it. There is no question of the impact of what he did. There is no question of his understanding or acuity Absolutely. when he did it or the plans that went in place for him to do it. Um, I, quite frankly, I wasn't surprised at the verdict just because uh, mass shooters get the death penalty in very minimally across yeah. this country. Um, I, you can get the death penalty for things that don't relate to, math, to mass shootings yeah. more readily than you can a mass shooting. It's more so this led a nationwide movement to watch the, 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 the families of those that were lost, and even the survivors who currently who have survivor's guilt, who have you know um, created avenues across the country to align people around common sense gun reforms. Those young people who will never be able to eradicate that horrible day from their minds. Those people, what are you telling them and their families when you decide that this person is not worthy of the death penalty. I would like to talk to some of the jurors who made that decision. Yeah. Because I, I just quite frankly don't see how you could, not with all the evidence that was before Yeah, apparently you. there were three juror holdouts, so three people who didn't want uh, the death penalty. And I think these, the way they they put people on these juries, I think you basically have, it's not like, well, they just happen to have someone on the jury who is against the death penalty. I, I, my understanding, of course, is different state by state, so I'm not clear exactly what the policy here is, but my understanding is to even qualify to be on, on the death jury, you have to agree that it is permissible to use the death penalty. Like, you'll get, you won't get placed on it if you say, well, I'm against the death penalty in all cases, no matter how guilty the person is. So, so it is, so given that but everyone on there is open to... But then you also to, have the honors of believing that this person, just yeah. because they check the box, doesn't mean that they are. That's possible, um, yeah. The, the other part for me is that Florida is home of stand your ground laws. Mm -hmm. You have absolutely no problem with someone crossing over in property and basically busting a cap. At the end of the day, you have no problem with taking away life readily um, of people who have not posed a, a death to you. So we see this, this situation where he shot and killed 17 people. Um, at that point, there should be no question, at least there's none in my mind, and I don't take the death penalty lightly, but cases like this, it's an automatic, mm -hmm. you're out of here. Like, I hope you well, the other, pray for salvation. The logistical problem with the death penalty now is becoming that... The drugs aren't available. Yes, the drugs aren't available because lethal injection is a is actually just, an, in my view, a really awful policy. Um, I, we're trying to make death seem more medical or something. If, if you're going to ex execute someone, The idea was it's supposed them, to be like, more humane. It's not a more humane. It they, is they, they absolutely like, oh, well, not more humane. It's not the same as electric shock. It's not the same well, as electric shock to electric is terrible chair. too. But it, or or gassing or well, you know yeah. standing in a firing squad, which certain firing states have said they want to do that. Do. Firing squad <laughs> is what we should do. Because. Quite frankly, to your point, the 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 drugs aren't yeah, readily available. Yeah, so is not more humane. I mean, forget electric shock. That was a that was an inventor, um, an eccentric inventor, uh, uh, persuaded some municipalities to to do that because he was trying to sell his device. Like it's never worked very well at all. It's horrible and it doesn't succeed in killing the people. But yeah, the the, the drug, the combination of drug cocktails, we actually don't know that it's humane. Um, and, and and actually, in fact, sometimes it doesn't work, and then the people are in agonizing and pain. And we know that people like, feel it because the whole idea when terrible. they were pushing it was that 
you yeah. don't feel it. Was it the person it's doesn't? Not, and that's we've we've since learned. We should that be clear about what we're if, if you're gonna if we're killing someone, I mean, that's what we're doing. It's 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 a it's a it's a violent thing. We're saying the state has the right to do it in extreme cases, maybe like this one. I if firing squad is by far a more humane method of execution than any of these things. But people are all like I get this. People are uncomfortable with that it's actually violence that we're doing, and it, it seems violent. So that would be my it's my weird. Actually, I've seen a there's a there was someone on death row who was filing suit for the right to be executed by firing squad for precisely that reason. No, because it is obviously more humane. I mean, none of this is humane. Killing someone is not humane. But if we're going to do it, yeah, the, the, the drug cocktail is just really awful. It doesn't work. Sometimes they recover. They're half brain dead. They're, it's a terrible idea. Um, the final sentence by Judge Shearer will take place on November 1st, so that will be the sentencing to find out, you know, how I think he's just going to get life in prison without parole, almost certainly, but we'll keep following that, and we'll have more rising right after this. Rapper Ye, formerly known as Kanye West, is set to buy conservative social media platform Parler. That was just revealed this morning. Parler's parent company revealed the deal earlier this morning, writing Ye made, quote, a groundbreaking move into the free speech media space and will never have to fear being removed from social media again. Hmm. Well, the rapper's Twitter account was suspended last week after he posted some questionable tweets. He tweeted that he would go, quote, death con three on Jewish people. And his recent comments not only got his account paused on Twitter, but big bank J.P. Morgan Chase announced it's ending its relationship with Ye's Yeezy empire come November 21st. It's unclear why the bank called it quits on Kanye, but it's not the only brand to sever ties with him. Gap is out, and Adidas revealed that it is reviewing its partnership with Ye. So I think there's no question that uh, the tweets he sent, the things he said were, were very bad. He doubled down on them in a, a recent interview as drink well. Champs. That, drink Champs. Drink yes. Champs. Yeah. What is Drink uh, Champs? It is a popular podcast. It's for the culture, so to speak, um, on Diddy's network. And it basically is supposed to delve into hip-hop culture, politics, um, everyday conversations that matter to the black community. Mm -hmm. Now, anti-Semitism, I never thought was one that mattered to the black community, but judging by the ratings he got, the number of shares, everybody who's talking about this, I do think that there is something to be said about, one, it coming from Ye, and there are a lot of people who still, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, respect him or say that, or, or try to make excuses for his behavior. Oh, it's because his, his mom passed and he was never the same again. Or, you know, his mental health. I don't know anybody who has mental health issues who becomes anti-Semitic because of said mental health issues. But we're seeing more and more of these excuses made for Gay, who honestly doubles down multiple times. And he's done it on, in social media since. Um, and is having those conversations. He's not apologetic at all. And he honestly is pushing conspiracy theory and hateful rhetoric um, about Jewish people and, and organizations that he feels like Jewish people run or have leadership positions in. Uh, he was defended, interestingly enough, by uh, Candace Owens, a conservative commentator for Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, uh, which it then prompted, I saw some uh, then criticism of the Daily Wire for not you know, criticizing Candace Owens, um, uh, 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 Ben Dominich, The Spectator, a friend of mine, and uh, Josh Hammer, I saw, uh, who of Newsweek, uh, works with our co-host Bacha, also calling out The Daily Wire there. So there's a little bit of conservative infighting here. Um, I, I've always thought Kanye is just kind of a kook. So I, I, I think his political views are, are so not well thought out 
that it's it's and it's it's wrong always in my view to seek political wisdom from like weirdo celebrity. I mean, obviously he's a very successful person in all these other sorts of areas in 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 uh, in music, in culture, et cetera. But that doesn't mean you have good political instincts or you're like a smart person about politics. I don't think and you should look for to any celebrity for not. political you know insights. But I, there is a difference between being an eccentric artist. Most artists, to a certain extent, are eccentric. Yeah. Um, that's part of the create, creative side of them versus being someone who is literally pushing very vile, disgusting anti-Semitism mm -hmm. across various platforms. And that's what we're seeing. Well, and now he's, so he's, uh, so this, we buried the leader here a little bit. So he is going to buy Parler. I have a statement from, uh, from uh, Parler. Uh, the it's, they've announced today, they've entered an agreement in principle to sell uh, the world's pioneering uncancelable free speech platform to Ye. Ye has become the richest black man in history through music and apparel and is taking a bold stance against his recent censorship from big tech. So Parler did, in my view, really get mistreated by um, the various web hosting services that took it down uh, in the wake of January 6th. Now, it is unquestionable that bad, violent criminal things were being organized on Parler, but they were also being organized on Facebook. On and, 4chan and several other places. And those places didn't get taken down. So it felt it, there was a coordinated deplatforming of of Parler for things that were bad, but also things that are just common across all social media But the media thing platforms. is, many of the people who ran to Parler were people who did not want to get flagged for their language. Maybe not taken off of other platforms, but didn't yeah. want to get flagged for said language. So they went there because they knew that those measures were not in place. The other issue is that it was, and we've seen several screenshots, I'm not a member of Parler for obvious reasons, but we've seen several screenshots of the type of rhetoric that has been posted there that is quite frankly problematic. Which but you can the, find that on Facebook. You, you, you can find, can find it, it in, the, in, in the annals of the internet in many yeah. places. But an organized group that is subvergent to government, that is um, basically issuing hate messages, not only anti-Semitism, but also in racism, that literally echoes to what we heard from white supremacists in the 50s and 60s, these are not things that I believe should be widely spread and widely shared, um, especially in formats where you have hundreds of thousands of people or the entire globe, like Twitter has that, that level of, of prowess for you to be able to join and have these types of conversations. Parler has been essentially a safe haven for people who have these very problematic views. So it makes sense that Ye would join because he doesn't want to have consequences for the things that he says. Mm -hmm. So to join with like-minded kooks and people who have absolutely no problem being anti-Semitic as hell, for lack of a better term, that's something that he feels as well. But my, my general principle would be, like, yes, I agree with you, this speech is bad. Uh, it, criticize it, respond to it, call it out. The structured kind of formal, like, remove this speech from various platforms or get it off the internet has gone, in my view, so wrong so many times that I don't trust these gatekeepers, these guardians of what you're allowed to say. To, to get the judgment right. So I default toward allowing a lot of speech or thinking a lot of speech ought to be allowed, even if I think the speech itself is very bad, as in the case of the things Kanye's saying. But like they have taken down, you know, they've take, taken down information about uh, COVID that later the, it comes out that, well, actually, you should be able to say that. Um, uh, you know, stories about uh, national security stories, the Hunter Biden story. There's been so many examples of things like you're, you should not, you're not allowed to say this on social media. We're, we're pro prohibiting that that later 
that turned out to have been a mistake. So given that, I'm always very, very cautious, extremely cautious from saying, yeah, you shouldn't be allowed to say this on social media. Obviously, it's up to the platform's discretion. But in some cases, the, the government is ordering them to do it. Now all these revelations are coming out about how Alex Berenson, who, was, uh, who had, took a very, very contrarian view on COVID and on vaccines, and I have disagreed with him. I disagreed with him very strongly. Uh, we've argued about it uh, online and elsewhere. Um, but it, it, I, I don't. Uh, but uh, some of his views turned out to be. Uh, I mean, he was early saying that it was not going to um, do much for cases, and, and that now is more right than it w certainly was before. Um, anyway, there's, he has all this evidence of I mean, Biden administration officials barking, yelling at Twitter to take to take him down for things that now you, you're allowed to say on Twitter. He's back up. The other side of that coin is that domestic terrorism has no doubt been expedited because of the amount that's able to be shared on social media. Well, these people can organize, that. these people can advance, these people can rally, and quite frankly, and we, we've seen it, we've seen it in some of the mass shootings, most of these mass shooters had pseudo manifestos on social media. Yeah. So there are people who do well, all they were do mass say all shooters types regardless of, crazy of whether No, I'm not saying that they wouldn't be, but I am saying that sometimes we have seen people who have obviously slipped through the cracks and laid out yeah. an, a, a, an essential plan of what they were going to do yeah. and, to name murder and, 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 and the FBI knew about it and, and did, nothing did, did nothing over and over so, again. <laughs> there are problems there. I don't think that Kanye West is a danger to, uh, to, to Jewish people personally. Like, he would never yeah. go out and commit any of these atrocities himself. But his language and rhetoric inspires people who have anti-Semitic tones already mm -hmm. to think this is okay and to advance those things. We've seen the increases in violence against the Jew people of the Jewish faith, people of the Jewish community. That cannot be denied. However, what we continually see is a Republican Party, by and large, you, you named a few people who pushed back against some of Kanye's rhetoric, but the Republican Party, by and large, has not moved to stump this out. And many of the speakers currently who are pushing these anti-Semitic tropes happen to align with conservatives. So there has to be a point where you say, this is not okay. And I am mm -hmm. waiting as a, as a non-conservative, but just as a concerned citizen, I'm waiting for those people to step up, step up because you are not a leader if you do not call this out. And they should, they should call it out and they should say it's not okay. I think that's different from, from saying it should be not, not everything short of illegal. It should be, you, you should be you know, thrown off, your plat, whole platform should be taken down, all that. The coordinated punishment of people for speed that's now happening across i mean i talked we talked last week about paypal uh, paypal deciding misinformation it is going to they're going to deduct two thousand dollars from your account if you're guilty of that then they change course there's a, a little bit something sinister i would is all i'm saying in the kind of coordinated effort among uh, massive corporations in collusion with the government to stop people from being able to say some stuff that is legitimately bad but uh, you know we have free speech for a reason right Ye needs to learn how to stop speaking. <laughs> All right, good advice for, for Kanye West. More rising right after this. Kanye West has gotten into more hot water, this time after he suggested a fentanyl overdose caused George Floyd's death, not homicide. The attorney who represents the Floyd family, Lee Merritt, signaled they are considering suing the rapper. Ye's recent tweets and controversial interviews even drew the attention of former President Donald Trump, who called Ye's actions, quote, crazy, and said he needs help. <laughs> wow, how interesting. Um, it's bad when Trump calls you crazy. Yes, it can be bad. Now, I don't, uh, I, I think the likelihoods of, 
Uh, I, I hate everyone suing everyone for every reason. Um, again, we should have free speech in this country. You should be allowed to say things that are wrong, that are edgy, that are contrarian, without either being thrown offline or kicked out of school or job loss or being sued. So, look, that's what you know. The the obviously the the police officer who um, who. Derek whose actions, Derek Chauvin, whose actions result, were determined to have resulted in the death of George Floyd from the standpoint of him being prosecuted, um, that's, that's so, some significant evidence for the fact that, y yes, he was killed by the police. And a police um, officer who admitted in federal court right. what he did, right. that this was the cause, and coroners and medical examiners who have shown that that was his cause of death. This flies, Kanye's statements fly in the face of fact. They fly in the face of medical evidence. They fly in the face of what all of us saw. Like, it was the mm -hmm. video scene worldwide that sparked a movement. Um, it's very frustrating, and I get what you're saying. There are a lot of superfluous lawsuits that should just be thrown yeah. out. And there were probably, to be, you know, in all fairness, there were contributing a, a healthier person might might have survived that interaction. That you know, they're contributing factors and everything. Now, however, the the police officer would have definitely survived the interaction if the knee was never right. on his neck. The police officer and the police officer's behavior was contrary to police training. It was unnecessary because George Floyd was already. Uh, I mean, the whole thing was unnecessary. But George Floyd was already. Um, he, he was not a risk. He was he was handled. He was he was pinned. So then you then you cuff him, put him in the car, etc. You know, they it, it was minute after minute after minute after minute of the of of Chauvin. Uh, you know, knee on the back. If people. Uh, onlookers, people saying, expressing concern. So you can't say the police officer had no idea he knew what he was doing. It was contrary to training and reckless, and people were saying, look, he's in bad shape. You got, like, why are you still kneeing on this man? And, and it, it, that, was, that was what the court determined was what killed him. Literally watching him lose his life yeah. while your knee is on his neck. And I take this very seriously as I do all things that are police brutality and excessive force. Again, my father's a police officer in Chicago. So when I watch this and know what yeah. he encounters on a daily basis and the stories that he you know, has to tell about these things, there is protocol. And yeah. none of that was followed in this case, not just with the knee on the neck, but also the protocol that tells you that you should offer assistance. That was not there either in terms of trying to revitalize this person, trying to ensure that their health is okay. He was absolutely fine, essentially snuffing this man out and watching the entire time. Meanwhile, but, yeah. crowds are gathered filming it. They're begging for mercy. He does not care. Neither do his other but, police officers. But all of that said, it is, it's, it's opinion. Well, I mean, I think it's the wrong opinion that it was caused by something else. It runs else. against that. It's not just, you can have an opinion, right. but, but when the medical examiners, yes. when the coroner, yeah. when in a federal case, the actual contributing officer to his death right. has admitted but people his own be, guilt. people get sued for bad opinions. <laughs> they do the all difference. the time. Well, no, no, they do, <laughs> but they shouldn't be able to be sued. They don't necessarily for uh, get... I mean, no, the bar is very high, right? It's, it's, uh, it would be unlikely, in my view, that a case would find him liable here for defamation, that, that a court would find Kanye liable for defamation for expressing a bad opinion. I don't know about that. We've seen celebrities be found liable for really stupid opinions that have caused, um, that it have caused harm to Are you talking to Amber Heard, Johnny Depp here? And we got Amber well, Heard, we got Johnny Depp. We've, we've seen people get sued for these things, and it actually, it well, yeah, actually anybody can sue anyone, right? They can get sued. Anyone can sue 
anyone for any reason. No, but actually right. having to pay the recourse. So that does happen. And I think that in this case, because he did this in conjunction with Candace Owens and a very questionable documentary that she has coming out, and we know she's got a bone to pick right. with the Black Lives Matter movement taking off and you know and, and gaining a lot of strength after the George Floyd uh, George Floyd death and protest strikes. Um, this is something that she's been on for a very long time. She has said since it happened that George Floyd, that, that he was not necessarily murdered by this police officer. She has pushed the overdose theory. She has done this regularly and then stood by and helped create a documentary where, again, flying in the face of fact, this is something but that my, she continues to do. My understanding is that the, the, fa the opinion fact difference from a legal standpoint it, so, for instance, in the Amber Heard Johnny Depp case, it ends up being a factual ac allegation. You know, whether uh, who had uh, uh, engaged in physical abuse at the other person, and, and said, "Well, yes, actually, through something like that was a bit." So that's a fa that you know whether some physical action was taken is a factual assertion versus. Like, you know, what caused his death is more of a, again, I agree with you for what the actual cause is, but it's falling into the category of opinion, I think, rather than any kind of actionable, factional clip. So I don't think, I don't think it would be actionable. I mean, obviously you can try, but that's why I don't think it's, but I don't, I don't think, I don't think he's in danger of paying any, out any money because of it, but. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think that if he continues to amplify, which knowing Kanye West, he will, he doesn't know when to stop. Um, I, I could see that recourse actually, you know, turning up for him because again, He's perpetuating something that is not only painful and damaging mm -hmm. and absolutely incorrect, he is knowingly doing it, again, in the face of actual legitimate facts. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all we have for today. Amisha, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's always exciting, Robbie. Wonderful. All right, Botchit will be back with us next Monday, and Bree will be here tomorrow, so stay tuned for all of that. And please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And also for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're streaming on Roku and other platforms, which is very exciting. And we hope you're watching us one way or the other. And I will see you back here tomorrow. Goodbye, everybody.